Today's scripture reading is from Esther 2, verses 1 through 23, and would you please read with me the verses in bold. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Hegai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Hegai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem, to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go in to King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight, more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants, 
it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of, king, of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Um, really uncomfortable to read, I think. Uh, that section I, <clears throat> doesn't seem like it should be in the Bible. Um, but when we, what we read about in the second chapter of the book of Esther, uh, it seems like a scene right out of a, a Miss Universe pageant, doesn't it? Um, or better yet, some reality TV show like Who Wants to Marry a Millionaire? Or The Bachelor. Now, truth be told, I've never watched an episode of The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. I promise. Now, there's no judgment if you have or if you're into, into that sort of thing. Well, I copied and pasted this straight from the internet, just to let you know. Uh, the Bachelor is an American dating and relationship reality television series. It revolves on, around a uh, single bachelor who begins with a pool of romantic interests from whom he's expected to select a wife. During the course of the season, the bachelor eliminates candidates. I guess that's what we're calling them. Uh, each week, eventually culminating in a marriage proposal to the final selection. Ooh, sounds exciting. In season 26, episode 12, the description of that particular episode that aired on March 15th of this year says, and I quote, Clayton faces three women he fell in love with. Jesse Palmer guides emotional conversations throughout the evening as the bombshell conclusion to Clayton season, Clayton season plays out. Uh, friends, my research stops right there. <laughs> I have no idea who Clayton is or the three the names of these three women, or Jesse Palmer, and for as all, for as a, you know, for all I know, Jesse Palmer might be one of the, the three women. Uh, I, I don't, I don't know that. But when we read through the second book of the book of a uh, second chapter of the book of Exodus, uh, seems like a scene right out of a reality TV show. There's a bachelor in search of the next queen of Persia. Now, if you remember the backstory from last week, you'll recall King Ahasuerus has the party of the century. He's invited the who's who of the powerful in Persia. There are military leaders, there are governors, there are officials, there are nobles, there's royalty. Anybody who is a somebody is there. And the author of the book of Esther makes sure to tell us the purpose of all of this is to show off his might. 
the might, the strength, the power, the, the influence of King Ahasuerus of Persia. In chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, the army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. And while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for, for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And so again, it was an extravagant, over-the-top type of display meant to impress. Your jaw is supposed to drop at the sight of such outrageous excess and indulgence. You're supposed to be wowed by the power and the, and the wealth of King Ahasuerus. But not only does King Ahasuerus possess the strength of a mighty army or an expansive kingdom that includes 127 provinces that stretch from India to Ethiopia or the riches to throw such lavish parties, if that weren't enough, he has a beautiful wife as his queen. But here's the problem. When the king summons his queen, Queen Vashti, to appear before his guests, Queen Vashti refuses. And as soon as she refuses, she loses position and power as queen. She's no longer to appear before King Ahasuerus. But what you see, to command his wife to appear dressed up in her royal finery for the enjoyment of a crowd of drunken men was to treat her like an object. A doll which existed for the king's pleasure and to show off his power, a trophy wife. Here is the most powerful man in all the land and yet utterly powerless. that he has to issue a decree. In verse 19, again, this is all review, but if it pleases the king, the author writes, let a royal order to go out from him, let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So all that to set us up for chapter Two, the queen has been disposed and there is a kingdom-wide search for a new Cinderella. We're introduced to a young Hebrew gal by the name of Hadassah. We all know her by her more familiar name, her Persian name, Esther, of whom the book is named. And when you read a book like Esther, or Ruth for that matter, the only two books named after women you expect it to read like a romance novel. It's about these women in search of a man. Ruth finds a husband and a, and a kinsman redeemer. And, and Esther, winning the ultimate prize, a, a marriage to a king. But Esther chapter 2 is far from overflowing, far from overflowing with romance. It's not your thrilling episode of The Bachelor with a knight in shining armor or a, a prince charming on the other side. For you see, we've met the king. Chapter 1 tells us all about King Ahasuerus. 
King Ahasuerus is a, a drunken, chauvinistic self, a, a skirt-chasing a despot. We don't just get to find that out, the story uh, about who he is and, and what he's like. The first chapter makes it very clear what kind of person the king really is. And as Pastor Brad mentioned last week, the whole story reads like a satire, mocking the empire's claims to power and authority. The book is intended to make us laugh, cutting the empire, the king, down to size. King, you think you wield power and control? Think again. You are no match for the king of the universe. As I mentioned, we're tempted, I know I was, to think of the book of Ruth as a love story of a, a man and a, and a woman. And we're also tempted to think about Esther in the same light. Think about Esther, who is this poor Jewish gal who marries the king of the great nation of Persia. Chapter 2 is not a love story. Although the word love is mentioned of King Ahasuerus' affection for Esther, rather, chapter 2 is dark, it's troublesome, and it's certainly uncomfortable to read and even more uncomfortable to preach. I believe, when I read through it again, I am led to believe that it's a tale of abduction, of abuse, of immorality. The competition wasn't something that people applied to. Everyone's hat was in the ring simply by virtue of living within the empire. There's no freedom. You're drafted for this contest, this competition, this weird pageant of sorts. Ian Dagwood, a uh, commentator on his, uh, in his book on Esther, says, and so the whole purpose for existence in Persia was to serve the empire. The permission was needed, uh, no permission was needed for the empire to draft young women into this particular branch of civil service. The empire didn't care whether parents had other plans for their daughter. In the world of the Persians, everything anyone possessed, including one's body, could be and was claimed by the empire if the empire wanted it. To call it a competition might be a little misleading. Since no one got to go home afterwards, the king would just add them to his harem. And yet it's here, amidst all the moral ambiguities and the shocking abuses, that we are being invited to, the, to trace the footprints of a sovereign God who works in and through and despite sin and suffering that we find here. Esther 2 does not flinch from narrating for us the simple, ugly fact of life in ancient Persia where people are treated as commodities, as, as objects. My friends, this is no fairy tale. of a poor Jewish girl falling in love with Prince Charming. Esther, too, is a story the like of which, when we hear of it on the news, we can scarcely bear to think about. 
And we have places like this in Scripture. I want to give three points, and I'll kind of walk through the, the passage as a whole this morning. But number one, God's word never shies from telling us the truth. God's word never shies from showing us the, the evils of this world, the, the darkness of the, the human heart. The Bible never shies away from talking about difficult subjects, uncomfortable ones to read or, or to preach, for that matter. God's word speaks to the abused, and certainly God's word speaks to the abuser. Some of the darkest things of which you might be ashamed or unable to share with others are named here. God names them here. God speaks to the extremes of our experience when our culture and society don't know how to think about these things. Our God is not bewildered when the unthinkable happens. He names them. And the beauty of this is that he names them and he reminds us that he, he hears us and he sees us, that we are never alone. You see, because it's in the darkest reality of our lives, the gospel shines brighter. And Esther chapter 2, as bleak as it is, offers us, you and me, unspeakable hope. When the world is dark and, and there's evil that surround us, the gospel offers us hope. We are reminded that the light shines in the darkness. Psalm 23 talks about how we will know that God is with us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We will know he is near and protecting us when we are eating at a table prepared for us in the presence of our enemies. I think it needs to be said because we get lost in the news and we get lost in the horrors and, and the evils that surround us. And we need to be reminded that even in the midst of such things that, that God cares. That God speaks to these difficult things. And in the midst of this all-consuming empire, we are introduced to two relatively insignificant characters. Number one, Esther. And number two, a man by the name of Mordecai. In Esther chapter 2, verses 5 through 7, now there was a Jew in Susa of the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jokaniah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, this is a, a hundred years old. Again, we know that the captives had been in, or the exiles had been in, in captivity in Babylon for 70 years. And again, these are a few of the remnants who are still in Persia. And perhaps uh, Mordecai was part of that initial group where his his family was part of that initial group that was carried away into Persia. And a hundred years they were there. And Mordecai, 
is mentioned. And in verse 7, it says he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and, her, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Mordecai is identified as a Jew, a descendant of Kish, from the tribe of Benjamin, which leads us back to one of the great uh, uh, Israelites uh, of that time. It was a King Saul. You may remember him as the first king of Israel. And again, uh, here Mordecai has connections to King Saul. We know that uh, Mordecai lived in the capital city of Persia and served as an official at the, at the city gate, at the palace gate. We also know that Mordecai did not return back to Jerusalem when the king gave permission to all the exiled Jews to return home. And we also know that he adopted Esther as his own daughter after her father and mother passed. Like Mordecai, Esther has a Persian name. Her Hebrew name is given to us in the first verse of chapter 2. She is Hadassah. The Bible describes her as a beautiful woman, uh, easy on the eyes. That's my interpretation. And because of her beauty, she is chosen and taken to the king's palace. Now, Esther didn't merely find favor. It's not just a, a passive idiom. She wins favor. Now, this is the part that's really hard for me to digest. It's the hardest part for me to read. But David uh, Dagwood, uh, in his commentary, writes this. She worked for her promotion in the house of women by fitting in with the agenda and empire set for her. She was willing to let her, the empire define her reality. Resistance was not high on her program, unlike the previous queens. On the contrary, she seemed content, even eager to be assimilated. And in return for her compliance, Esther was rewarded with cosmetics, special food, privilege, position. And by the way, this completely shatters the image of uh, who I think Esther was when I read it uh, several times before. You know, Esther is the only one to have uh, two names in the book of Esther. She is both Esther and Hadassah. She is both a Jew and an assimilated Persian. Esther's two names suggest the challenge facing the people of God in exile. And the question, to which world does she really belong? There are two Esthers. There is Hadassah, child of the covenant, citizen of the kingdom of God. And then there's Esther, the pretty Persian girl about to be swept away into this whirlwind of responsibilities that she did not know she would ever have to be called upon to face as the queen of Persia. Not only does God speak to the abused and the abuser, not only does God address the extremes and the evils of life, but the other observation from the text here is that there are these two identities of Esther, these two worlds. Now again, I, I have multiple identities. You may know that. Um, you may know me as Timothy. My friends, uh, my really good friend uh, calls me, I don't know if I should say these or not. Uh, my really good friend calls me Hector. Uh, that's my name given to me when I was in college and was his roommate. Uh, 
and I have others, and I, I don't need to share some of those, but you may know me as Daniel or Danny or Dan. Um, but anyone who comes from a different culture knows the complexity of having two names, the complexity of having two identities. The two names implies a person moving between two worlds, two cultures. I have two names. I have a given name. My last name is first. In Eastern culture, the last name is important because it's a sign of, of a, a belonging to a family. And then I have a, a first and a middle. It's not a first and middle name. It's just part of the, uh, the first part or the, the first part of a, of, a, of a whole name. But my brother and I share the first part, which I think if you know Korean siblings, you may know that they have very similar, uh, either a first part or a second part to their name. But here Esther is... Uh, with two names, two identities, it seems. Coming from two different worlds. She's part of the chosen people of God. She has been in exile, living in a foreign land in a strange place for over 70 years. She is a Jew, but she has been assimilated into Persian culture, and, and you couldn't tell the difference. The king couldn't tell the difference. But this is the complexity of having two names and two identities and, and two cultures. But it's not just for those who come from two different cultures, but really it's a dilemma for anyone who belongs to the covenant community, who faces reality every day. This idea of, of balancing what it means to be a Christian and to be a Christian in the world, to be a follower of God living in the world. We are called to live and be in the world, but not of the world, as 1 John tells us. And many of us, ourselves, we have these two identities. We live in two planes, and it's strange how we think about our life this way, but we live in two planes, a an earthly one and a heavenly one. We live in these two planes of, of right now and not yet. We live in this complex plane of the here and now and the complexity of, of that which is over there. We live in this strange place and we live this, with this strange tension of of looking at Esther as the heroine of the story. And yet, she's utterly flawed. Something about her identity that uh, even Mordecai, her cousin, her adopted, uh, or her, um, her guardian, um, tells Esther not to admit. You see, it's for all of us who live as Christians in this world, there's a uh, a faithfulness that God calls us to in a way that will be costly. In one night, she pleases the king more than all the others. And he falls deeply in love with her, and he makes her his queen. And then one by one, they are required to spend the night, each of them, in the king's bed. 
And as the story reaches its conclusion, Esther wins the throne, we learn on the basis of her night with the king. And though some want to exonerate Esther, nothing ever happened that night. They will say others want to blame Esther as those who accuse her of using sex as a tool for power. The truth, however, is that Esther has been manipulated and abused. She has been emotionally, psychologically broken. And I think, and it's, I think it's true that when we read through this, we can see Esther as the victim. We don't need to amend the text to clean it up. We don't need to scold Esther as though she were an ambitious, modern starlet trying to sleep her way to the position of influence. Rather, we need to be reminded that these, uh, these words are filled with grief and empathy, recognizing that this story is a tale of a, a tale that is told and continues to be repeated all over the world in every culture and every age. You see, the, the Bible tells us that we are living in these two planes, that we are living as exiles, that we are living as strangers and aliens. And the Bible tells us that, again, we live in these two planes, that we are strangers right, residing on the earth whose home is in heaven. And, described, and, and Peter, I think, describes this very well when he tells us that we are resident aliens living in a land far away from home. But the text doesn't tell us, but I think is, uh, is obvious, is that here jo the Jews were chosen by God, that the Jews were chosen by God in his grace and mercy, and that God has redeemed us as his own. He's chosen us. He's chosen to make a nation of, of imperfect people, of flawed people, so that again, God might be glorified through that. last thing I'll share with you this morning is that here, God's, there's God's invisible providence in all of this. I want to share just um, this piece that Chuck Swindoll, one, uh, one author and pastor, he writes about the providence of God. He says this, although Shakespeare never appeared in this place, his presence is pervasive. Every act, every scene, every line of dialogue hears the imprint of his pen. He is the genius behind all the characters, every twist of plot, every poignant ending. And as far as the dramas and scripture are concerned, the book of Esther is an anomaly. It is the only book in the Bible that doesn't mention God's name. But like Shakespeare's plays, every page bears testimony to its author. Behind each scene, you can see the shadow of the Almighty directing from the wings. More than any other biblical book, Esther is a tribute to the invisible providence of God. Although we never actually hear or see God in the story, we have an overwhelming sense of confidence that he is just off stage, cueing the characters and orchestrating the drama in order to preserve, preserve his people from a tragic ending. That God would use even our sin. That God would use even our weaknesses and our, and our failings. That somehow behind all of this is the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. That even the silence of God, the sovereignty of God comes shining forth. That God is in control of the whole thing. There's an unfolding of the hand of God when we read through these stories. My friends, let me remind you again that in dark stories like this, uh, even even still, and, and despite 
the gospel shines through.